We'd appreciate you uh, returning to your seats. Ryan just said, I, I'm sure everybody knows me. But, but for the one person out there who doesn't, this is Ryan Heider. Ryan has been, uh, Ryan and Jessica have been Covenant members for about four years. Ryan has, uh, is a graduate of Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville. And uh, he is, uh, has previously been a pastor in, in a couple of churches before he came to Piney. And we're excited to hear him bring the word of God today. Let me pray for him. Lord God, I pray that you would fill Ryan with your Holy Spirit this morning. Father, I pray that you would uh, keep any distractions from his mind or his heart at bay. And Father, I pray that his uh, bringing of this message this morning will be an act of, of worship to you. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will do in our hearts and our minds what Ryan cannot, and that is to transform us more and more into your image. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It is quite the privilege to address you from God's Word this morning. <clears throat> um, just start with a, maybe a for instance, see if you can relate to this. Uh, have you ever noticed that the longer that you're with someone or the longer you've known someone, the easier it becomes to ignore or overlook or just miss altogether their displays of love towards you, their acts of kindness towards you. When you haven't known somebody very long, they do something nice for you, and you're like, wow, thank you. I, you didn't need to do that. I, I appreciate that. But once you've been married a few decades or friends for a few decades, it's easy to just get in the habit of noticing the things they did not do for you, the things you expected them to do for you. It's easy to just notice the things that you wanted them to do and ignore all the things that they did do as acts of love. Maybe you come home from work and the dishes aren't done. This, is, this never happened, purely hypothetical. <clears throat> They're still overflowing the sink like they were last night and you like for the dishes to be done. And so, in your sin, you pout, and you punish with your words and your demeanor. Unfortunately, in your quickness to condemn for the dishes not being done, you walked right through the entryway, the living room, the hallway, and the bedroom that your spouse had laboriously cleaned for you with your name in the front of their mind and on their heart. <clears throat> but selfishly, you credit them with none of those things because you're blind to those displays of love, because they don't align with your expectations. And friends, if we can so easily miss all the instances of love from our spouse or our best friend that are right there in our face in this world, is it possible that we are also ignorant of and blind to the ways in which our eternal Father pours out his love into our lives every single day? day. Wouldn't it be sad if the Father in heaven, like the best dad in the universe that he is, loved us with tenderness and consistency every day of our lives, which he does, and we skated through waking up, living our day, going to bed, waking up, living our day, going to bed, day after day, missing all of it because 
spiritually speaking, the dishes aren't done. We don't see it. And so we pray, Father, we come to your word this morning, and we pray that you would give us eyes to see your care for us, that you would give us an understanding to recognize how you lovingly shepherd us. Make us see and notice and praise your daily work and love in our lives. Amen. Turn to Genesis chapter 32. Here's the situation in Genesis 32. Jacob, Jacob the famed cheater and trickster, the, the younger of the infamous Jacob and Esau twins, Jacob has been away from home for many, many years. He's been far away long enough to have acquired a really large family uh, and a really large wealth, a net worth he's loaded now. And God tells him, Jacob, the one who's to inherit the promises given to Abraham, it's time to come home. Time to go back to the promised land. So, so Jacob sets out to go home to the promised land. He's on his way, but there's one big problem. <clears throat> Coming home means he's got to see big brother. And the last time he saw big brother Esau, Esau literally was so mad that he wanted to murder his brother. And by the way, Esau is the big, strong, bulky, outdoorsy. Like Esau will take Jacob in a fight every day of the week, one hand tied behind his back. <clears throat> Jacob, being the, the tricky, soft man that he was, he had tricked and duped his big brother, not once, but twice, in the worst possible way, and Esau was ticked. He was so mad that the last time they were together, Jacob literally ran away for his life. He moved up to, to, to live with his mother's family, and now he's been there, and he's time to come home, but he's still afraid for his life, and that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 32, verse 1. If you're willing and able, stand for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps." Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And so he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. 
These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servant, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present to my lord Esau. And moreover, he's behind us. And he likewise instructed the second and third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And then afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And so the present passed on ahead of him, and he stayed. He himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he, the angel, said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. You may be seated. I know that was a long passage. Thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> It's a long, confusing passage of Scripture. I was possibly reading it, and you were thinking to yourself, I wonder why in the world he chose that passage of all the passages in the Bible, which is a great question that I myself was wondering frequently this week, many different times. <laughs> um, there are a lot of things that we don't know about what was happening here and what God was doing and why specifically God was doing it. But I want to start with one core, central, and absolutely clear truth in this passage, and that is this. God loved Jacob. He loved Jacob. How do I know? Lots of reasons, but uh, we could talk about God's covenant and his faithfulness to his promises, but, but most clearly and obviously Malachi 1. We just don't get this clear of statements in the Bible very often. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, quoted in Romans 9, verse 13, God just says, quote, Jacob I loved. There you go. God loved Jacob. He said it himself twice. <clears throat> what I want you to know about God is that God is not made up of individual parts. So that God does not love us on the one hand and not love us on the other hand. God is what he is. And listen to this. He is what he is and he is those things in his entire being. Okay, so just maybe write this down if you want something cool to think about this afternoon. God is pure in all of his perfections. God is pure in all of his perfections. And so when he says, Jacob I loved, that means all of God loved Jacob. And because not only is he pure, but he is immutably unchanging in his character, 
God does not suffer from temper tantrums like you and me. God does not suffer from seasonal affectation disorder. He does not get depressed. He does not wake up on the wrong side of the bed and change the way he feels about us. The Lord changes not his compassions. They fail not. And so if at a certain point in time God says, Jacob, I love you, then all of God for all of time loves all of Jacob with every intention of his heart, period, and always. So that's what's, whatever, so whatever is happening here, whatever God is doing here to Jacob, we can be sure God is not hating Jacob. He is loving Jacob. Whatever's happening in this story must be a demonstration of the love of God to Jacob. So we ask the text, how in this text specifically does God demonstrate his love to Jacob? Glad that you asked. That's the question I would like to answer for you today, Lord willing, from this text. There are four surprising, at least to me surprising, four surprising ways in this text that God demonstrates his love for Jacob. They're really easy to miss. It's easy for us to walk through this text like you walk through your house and miss the clear displays of kindness and love. These are easy to miss, but we want to stop and recognize the displays of God's love toward us. And so we come to this text to be reminded. Number one, God sometimes demonstrates his love for us by encouraging us. All four of these points are going to use the word sometimes, which maybe confuses you because I said all of God always loves True, that is an absolutely true statement. But the way that all of God always loves changes according to what you need at any given moment. His love is displayed to you in a variety of ways. And perhaps we often overlook the displays of God because we expect God to always love us in the one way that we want to be loved. That ain't how it works. One surprising way God demonstrates his love for us is by sometimes encouraging us. Take a look again at verse 1. Jacob went on his way. And the angels of God met him, and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. Jacob knows his older brother is bigger and stronger and scarier. At least the last time they met, he was very, 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 very angry with him. And so Jacob admits in this text, I'm terrified. That's why I've been hiding for years. I'm terrified. He's terrified. God loves him. God sends angels to take care of him, to love him. But the surprising point here is not that God commands the angels to help Jacob because separate sermons some other time, I would suggest to you, propose to you that angels are very often, God is doing that. We just don't know it. He doesn't care to reveal that to us. It's not weird that angels come to help Jacob. What's weird, what's surprising is that God commands them to make themselves seen by Jacob, to make it visible and obvious to Jacob that they are there in his fear helping him. Why would God do that? Why would God want Jacob to see that and know that? Because he wants Jacob to be encouraged that he's with him. He wants the encouragement that comes from knowing, I'm terrified, but God is here with me. Isn't that amazing? By my count, God has done this now four times for Jacob. Four times he has supernaturally, powerfully come to Jacob to say, I'm with you, Jacob. I'm with you. Did you forget? I'm with you. I'm with you. Four times. Do you see the kindness and love of God being displayed to him? 
I'll never forget something that happened several years ago. I was in the middle of a very, very bad legal situation at work. My company was young and foolishly set up to not protect me or my family. And the situation was, was just progressively getting worse and worse. And I was terrified. I was terrified I was going to lose the company and potentially harm my family financially. I'm not sure why it gripped me the way it did, but I don't think I've ever felt such abject fear in my adult life as I did during that season of time. And there was a particular day where I had to drive over to the office of this client or former client to meet with them, and we were supposed to agree, try to agree to terms between attorneys and whatnot. And it was, so it was like all about to go down, and I'm driving over there, and I was just emotionally undone. I was, I was a wreck. I was terrified. And I'm singing, praying, and, and listening to Scripture, and I suddenly realized my father was right there with me. And he was not scared. And I was like a small child clinging to the pant leg of my dad. I looked up at dad's face, and he wasn't the least bit scared. And my fear just melted away. Remember the, the confidence as a little kid that comes from seeing that your dad's not scared? If your dad's panicking, watch out. But if your dad's not scared, you're like, oh, I guess it's fine. <clears throat> and it seems so obvious now, but at that moment, I just felt the reality and the truth of my heavenly Father's presence in a moving and powerful way, and I knew he was not panicking. Jesus promised me in Matthew 28, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And I knew at that moment he was keeping his promise to me, that my Father who loves me, who redeemed me, who wrote in my book, just like a father, all my deeds, who also commands legions of angelic warriors, was with me. And what the real kicker... <laughs> Just as an added bonus, I realized, I literally realized all this in the moment. I realized that my king was also their king. <laughs> my king was the king of, their, of my enemies. <clears throat> and he's, he's with me, he's my father, and he's for me. He's for me. It was like when Gandalf the White at dawn showed up in the Minas Tirith battle, and all they, they all looked at each other, and they were like, yes, you're all in big trouble now. That's what I thought in an instant. The word of God coming to my mind, my heart is at peace. Beloved, those moments when you see that reality, and you remember it and feel it, and you are encouraged by God's presence, that right there, dial in on that, that is God loving you. God loves you by doing that work in you. You're feared. Scripture comes to mind. The Holy Spirit ministers to your heart. You're encouraged. Your face is turned upward. That is God loving you. That's a demonstration of God's love encouraging you. It's a surprising work of God. Don't miss it. Don't overlook it. Just think back for a second through your life and put a little pin on the timeline each moment that God has done that for you. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. When you were in your car and that song cheered your tired hearts, or you were in your church seat there and you, a prayer strengthened your weak faith, or a sermon lifted your troubled heart, recognize that work of the Word of God as a display of love from your Father because that's exactly what it is. Number two, God sometimes demonstrates His love for us by putting us in a place of painful desperation. 
Remember I said the word sometimes is important. He loves us sometimes in vastly different ways. Verse 6 says, when Jacob sent messengers to Esau to tell him he was coming home, Esau immediately took 400 men and rode out to meet him. That's not the reaction Jacob was hoping for. (laughs) This sounds bad, you guys. 400 men don't come to a family reunion. Well, Jacob, the schemer, kicks it into fifth gear. The text, he's trying to figure out what to do. How can I, what, what do I have? How can I figure this out? And it says, he took a present for his brother Esau. Now, I just want you to understand something. This present is like literally the best present in the world. I would like to sign up for this present. It is 580 head of livestock that Jacob proposes to just gift to his brother Esau. In that economy... We're talking about, because of valuation of, of, of livestock and all these kind of things, but we're talking about a gift worth millions of dollars in today's valuation. And Jacob is just giving away his fortune. He's hoping that when Esau finally gets to him, he's arranged them all strategically, <clears throat> he's hoping that he'll be like, well, I guess I'm not mad anymore since you made me a healthy, a wealthy man. Um, in verse 22 and 23, Jacob sends finally everything else across the river, even his family that he had previously split up into two camps. It's all across the river. He thinks, well, if one group is slaughtered, at least I won't lose all of my children and wives, he had two, at the same time. I assume you've never considered which of your children you might have to let die. This man is desperate. This man is tired terrified, rock bottom. This is the bottom of the barrel, right? If you ever were in a situation where you had to split up your kids in order that at least somebody might, die, might live, th- like that's the worst of the worst of the worst time of your life, right? And look at the very next sentence, verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. This is where we identify with Jacob. Perhaps you can identify there with Jacob today, maybe not today, maybe pretty recently. You, you feel this, right? I'm tired. I'm worried. I'm spent. I'm running on fumes. And I'm alone. I just don't have much left. In case you're wondering, children, I'm describing adulthood. So much of life is spent in the red zone. Okay, so let's ask the text God, when one of your children that you consistently and deeply love is alone, desperate, in fear of his life, how is it that you sometimes come to him in your kindness and love him? And the answer in verse 24 is that God loved Jacob in this moment by sending an angel to wrestle away every last bit of strength that Jacob had. Surprising, right? God loved Jacob by sending a warrior from heaven to beat him down and whittle away at him a little bit more. To put him into a place of utter painful desperation. That's what this is, by the way, an angel. Um, This is confirmed in verse uh, 28. It's also confirmed a few verses later on in verse 30 where he says, I've seen God face to face. If you have any doubt, Hosea chapter 12 makes it crystal clear where it says, and I quote, Jacob strove with the angel. 
and prevail. This is an angel. The Bible understands this man to be an angel. However, it doesn't seem to me, I think he's called a man at first, because Jacob doesn't understand in this case that it is an angel until later on. At first, it's just a dude who's fighting with him, and then later on he realizes it's an angel. <clears throat> we don't know how the angel started the fight. Maybe he walked up and slapped Jacob on the cheek. I'm not sure. I assume that the angel made some joke about Jacob's wife being bald. Um, but, the, <laughs> but the angel the angel picked the fight with Jacob. I do know that from the text. Not much is clear from the language. Later on, the tables turn, and we'll get there. But the fight is started by the angel, and then they wrestle and fight, oh my goodness, for what seems like hours until the break of day. It was night. Now it's day. So just imagine this. Imagine the exhaustion. This is not a middle school playground fight. This was, for Jacob, a fight for his life that seems to last for hours. Just see them collapsing, drenched in sweat, arms shaking from adrenaline, or maybe they're limp at their sides and now they're just, they're out of energy, just swinging, wrestling, punching, kicking, bleeding, and then doing it all over again. And we're watching this. We're on the riverbanks now watching this, mouth open, aghast, saying, God, what are you doing? What are you doing, God? I thought you loved him. Why would God send an angel to fight? And I mean, fight, fight. Someone's going to get hurt. God has promised to do his servant good, and now he's sending his ministering spirit to pick a fight with him. Why? How many times have you asked that in your own darkness? Why are you doing this? Why are you whittling away at this poor wretch? John Newton asked in his famous hymn, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Whatever specific sin or character that God is confronting in Jacob here, we can't know for sure. But generally speaking, God is exhausting Jacob so that Jacob will be completely reliant, desperate, dependent on God. I know that because that's what happens. That's what ends up happening. <clears throat> that's what God intended to happen. The love of God for us is a love that would have us desperate and completely dependent on God. Listen, that is what Jacob needed most. More than he needed wings to fly away from the fight, or more than he needed a magic sword to fight his brother, more than he needed sleep and energy to get ready for this fight, he needed to know that he needed God. And God loved him by taking him there to that place. He was scared, yes, but he was still conniving. He was terrified, but he was still scheming and planning and trying to work over his brother. But God did not leave Jacob in a state of self-reliance because he loved him. Because he loved him. Not despite loving him, no, no, because he loved him. He sent an angel to break him as a display of his love. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You think that your life is hard, you should hear about the Apostle Paul sometime. He went through so many things, 
So, so many things. Um, but 1 Corinthians 1, starting there in verse 8, it's on the screen for you if you'd like. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Please, God, help us listen to this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself, Paul said. The severe afflictions we experienced in Asia, that's persecution, nakedness, famine, sword, flogging, mocking, beating. I mean, we're talking bad, bad, bad stuff. It was hard. Life was really, really, really hard. And then he says, but that was to make us rely. The middle of verse 9 there is just one little Greek word, but in order that. It's kind of abstracted in the ESV, but, it, but in order that. But in order that we would rely. You know what that means? That means there was purpose. That word means purpose. There was divine purpose in persecutions. There was divine purpose in famine and nakedness and flogging and beating. They were intentional. That's what that word means, right? Let's just take a for instance. You and I are walking along. You trip me and I fall and I look up at you and say, why did you do that? If you say, oh, my bad, I didn't mean to. Okay, there was no purpose there. It was an accident, forgiven. But if you say, so that you'd stop being a jerk, Ryan, I look up at you and say, that means you meant to do that, <laughs> right? Doesn't that word, phrase mean intention, purpose? You did something so that, that means you did it with purpose. Paul says these things happen so that we might rely on God. God crushed Paul with wave after wave of persecution so intense that the apostle was asking for death. He didn't want to go on. And we find out it was done on purpose. Why? Why would God do that? Why would God do that to Paul? We don't have to guess. Verse 9 tells you. So that Paul would rely on God. He was making us, Paul says. You can, we can talk about <laughs> Does God make us do this or that? The text says he was making us rely, making us. God doesn't just hope and pray that one day we'll turn out the way he wants us to. He doesn't cross his fingers and, and just hope somehow that his people will be ho holy and fully trust in him. He was making Paul. He was making Timothy. He was making Jacob. And he will make us rely not on ourselves but on God. That is our tendency, isn't it? We are always trending towards self-reliance. I got this. It's good. I can handle this. I can use my intellect to figure this out. I mean, whew, I, yeah, I can juggle all this and use my money and my security to handle life. I got this. And here comes our father saying, oh, no, you don't. And he drives us deeper into despair to make us rely on him. Back to Genesis. <clears throat> Jacob, tired as he was, he still had a cunning plan. He 
He was still relying on his brains and on his gifts and on his money. Jacob was still relying on himself. That's verse 25. It says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. As of yet, verse 25, the angel has not prevailed means conquer or have victory over. He was close. Jacob was close to being broken and submitting to the Lord in desperation, but there was just a little bit more, a little bit more breaking to do. And so the angel, in a move that clearly shows his hand as to being an angelic being sent from God, the angel just lightly touches Jacob's hip, verse 25. And he just touched it, and it wrenched it out of joint. Jacob's hip is torn out of its socket. This, has, this was nothing to do with the Bible. I was just curious. The Cleveland Medical Clinic says about displaced hip, the hip, quote, is normally one of the most secure joints in your body. Unless you have a prosthetic hip or hip dysplasia, it takes a lot to dislocate a hip joint. A dislocated hip is acutely painful and disabling and usually follows a significant injury. The angel did not break his pinky finger. He touched him and wrenched one of the toughest joints in his body, ripping muscle, tissue, ligaments. He disabled him. He disabled him with a touch. Which, by the way, God could have ended this fight before it ever started, right? Or one second, fight is over. Or no fight even necessary. There's just further evidences or proves what we're saying, and that is that the wrestling is the thing. The exhaustion is the thing God was doing. Just a tiny touch, and Jacob is wounded forever. And now this exhausted man with no energy, no hope, he also now cannot walk. Which, by the way, at this point, Jacob is not going to be much match for a stronger, fiercer, bigger brother who's headed his way with 400 men. You talk about the end of the rope. Well, end of rope, meet Jacob. His life is completely out of his hands, painful desperation. And I don't know, but I think that it's right at that moment that God opens Jacob's eyes to realize this was not a man. This is God's messenger. And the angel says, let me go, testing him, you see. But Jacob now says, no. It's turned. No, I can't. Not unless you bless me. I can't let you go. You hear the plea of desperation now? No, I need you now. Bless me. I've got nothing left. How am I going to do this without you? I have no more ideas left. You can go, and then I've got nothing. You're my only hope. Bless me. Jacob is confessing, I need you more than I need to rest. I need you more than I need to get across this river and strategize. I need you and your blessing more than I need life and family and material possessions. This, this is it. This attitude there is holy faith expressed. And that desperate clinging to God is what God wants for you more than everything else. That desperate clinging to God as your only hope for righteousness before him, that is what God wants for you. Don't listen to the preachers telling you God wants you to, you know, to be ha happy, healthy, rich, it's not true. He might. What I know that he wants for you is that you cling to him as your only hope in life and death. <clears throat> and so, because he wants that 
for you more than everything else. He sent his only son, Jesus, to take away the sin from a sinful people and to purchase holiness on their behalf. God bought our holiness with the precious blood of his son. If you belong to Jesus, your faith expressed in holiness is part of God's cosmic plan from before time began. And he accomplished that plan by shedding the blood of his only son. Nothing is more important than this. Therefore, nothing in this life will stop him. Nothing in this life will get in the way of him accomplishing that in you. Nothing. You being well-rested is not more important than you being holy. You having a clean kitchen or a night off or watching TV or your bills paid or both hips correctly in their sockets is not more important than you clinging to Christ as your only hope in life and death. Nothing is more important than that you trust him with all that you have with utter dependence on the blood of Christ to forgive you of your sins. And because nothing is more important, God will sometimes, oftentimes, come and take away lesser things until you see that. He might even, I I tread with fear and trepidation here, he might even, as in Job's case, take away all of the lesser things in order to see this, the greatest thing, take root and blossom in your heart. And what I want for you to see here is that when God is doing that work in you, when he is bringing the pain that causes the desperation, which leads you to cry out to him, that is an act of love. He is loving you. He's chipping away at the outer Adam in you because he loves you. Yes, it hurts. It hurts like the good, faithful discipline of a father, which is exactly what it is. It hurts for our good. These moments when God moves in and drives us to our knees with Jacob to cry out, I've got nothing left and I need you, God, that is God's love. And brothers and sisters, I want to call you to not waste these times in your life. Too too often in the midst of pain, we turn away from the Lord. We numb and self-medicate and run like Jonah did. Can you just imagine if Jacob had gone through this ordeal and then he just let the angel go and he laid on the bank of the river all the next day, got drunk, ate a bunch of Twinkies, watched Netflix all day. What a waste that would have been. What a waste to go through that pain and turn back to himself or to this world. To broken cisterns that do not satisfy. What a sad waste. Do not waste your pain. Don't let your tired, adult, worn out, stretched too thin, anxious life lead you away from God. The point of that pain is to drive you in desperation to God. That is the end for which God ordained your trials in the first place. This is one of the surprising ways he loves us. By sometimes harming, hurting, me, by sometimes hurting us but never harming us. By making us desperate to pursue him and grow in holiness. That's number two. By the way, number three and four are super tiny baby short, so don't worry about it. Number three. God sometimes demonstrates his love for us by helping us. 
Oh, back to Genesis. <clears throat> um, so after the encounter with the angel at the very end, verse 29, the angel, it says, verse 29, there he blessed him. There he blessed him. So after all that, in the end, God did bless Jacob. He did bless Jacob. And when Esau comes in the next chapter, which we don't have time to read, but if you look at verse 4 of chapter 33, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Okay? Esau had a change of heart. Esau forgave Jacob and showed him mercy. Jacob, <laughs> Jacob tried to give Esau this multi-million dollar gift, and Esau was like, nah, that's all right, bro. That's too, you keep it. That's too much. And Jacob was like, no, no, I insist. And Esau was like, all right, fine. And you know Jacob was like, oh, shoot, so close. <clears throat> but this will be easy to gloss over and miss, just like it's easy for us to gloss over and miss the displays of love from family and friends. It's so easy for us. We get all nervous and fearful and anxious, and we seek the Lord in our desperation and cry out to him, and then he comes and he helps us. Crisis resolved, and we move right on, right? We just run right on. We never stop and say, oh, God did that. God is the one that helped me here. Who do you think changed Esau's heart? Where did this change of heart come from for Esau? It came from the Lord. Jacob sought the Lord, and he found him, and he blessed him, and he helped him. And how easy it is for us to just miss these basic, simple demonstrations of God's caring love for us. Don't miss them. May God give us eyes to see those times where we seek the Lord's presence and then he lovingly answers us and helps us like he did for Jacob. That's one way that God displays his love for us. And fourth and finally, God sometimes demonstrates his love for us by not fixing us. By not fixing us or not fixing the situation or, you know, whatever. So the fight is over now. Everything is done. Jacob... He was hurt by God, but now he's clinging to God as his only hope. He gets his name changed to Israel. <clears throat> he's blessed by God. He's reliant on the Lord. The threat has passed. All is well, but verse 31. Such an interesting end of this chapter. Verse 31. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Jacob would now limp for the rest of his life. Interesting. Do you ever wonder why the angel didn't just heal him when it was over? Why not fix him? Or why hurt him in a way that had lasting impact for the rest of his life? The, wounded, the, the wound inflicted in his humbling submission and reliance on God, it was inflicted in a single moment, but by God's sovereign design, the wound will last forever for him. The wounds, beloved, of humility and reliance will sometimes last for the rest of our life as a painful reminder of our acquired reliance and dependence on God. Sometimes God may come and humble us and break us in one particularly long, hard season of our life. That's how he loves us sometimes. That's how he loves us into holiness. But for some, those, these might be spread out into little mini instances of, <laughs> of humbling into desperation over, over a long period of time. Wh whatever it looks like in your life, I would think in your brain you have a few instances in mind of times where you feel you have wrestled with God that led to a desperation, 
a desperate hope in clinging to him, a pain that ran so deep where you had nothing left but God, that's in your brain. Perhaps a day when everything culminated and you felt you couldn't go on, and with Paul, you despaired of life itself. Perhaps, like Jacob, you're still limping from that to this day. And perhaps you will go on limping for the rest of your life. God does not always love us by fixing those wounds. Whatever it looks like in your life, I want you to just go there in your heart. Think about those times. Think about that moment that changed your life. Let me challenge you with this question, with that moment in your mind. What if, instead of abandoning you or being mean to you in that moment, in that season, what if instead God, our Father, was loving you right then with the deepest, purest, most forward-thinking, eternal, covenant-bought blood love that there is? What if those wounds, what if they are the very evidence of God's love in your life? What if that limp, which has not gone away, that limping memory or physical limp or scar or whatever it is, what if that is still with you to this day so that you don't forget the desperation that you learned during that time? If that's true, that's God's love for you. That's God's gracious kindness to you. In your emotional brokenness, and your physical exhaustion, when you prayed that death would come, when you looked up and said, help me, Lord, I've got nothing except for you, that was the work of God. That didn't come from you. That didn't come from this world. That came from the spirit-wrought work of grace in your heart. A heartbeat toward God that makes us reliant and dependent on him is the work, merciful work of our Father. He didn't leave us then. He didn't leave you in those moments. He didn't forget about you. He didn't hate you during that season. He was tenderly caring for you even as he inflicted the wounds which will last and make you limp for the rest of your life. And beloved, if you could reach back in your life and pluck out all those dark times when you learned how much you needed God, if you could just remove all of those times and seasons from the timeline of your life, can I tell you something? You would not be you. The you that you would be today without those dark, painful times would be a more prideful you, would be a more puffed up you, would be a you that would say, you know what? I'm pretty good. I got this. I can handle this. I could build a tower that reaches to heaven. I have the resources in myself. Whereas, if God has loved you like I know that he has, then you're sitting here to saying, that ain't me. I've got nothing. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. This limp that we have is like a tattoo reminding us, every time we look at it, praise God for this wound. Praise God for this wound. That was his doing. That was his surprising love. And friend, if you, have, if you have not already submitted to him, if you are still holding on to bitterness and anger when you think about those times and those wounds, even while I say these words, may God give you an injection of grace 
to lay down your bitterness and exchange it for thanksgiving. Praise him with thanksgiving. Those are stripes of love. Well, in conclusion, I just think and wonder in general how many loving acts of kindness from God you and I have missed over the years. How many? Because we didn't recognize them. How many times we missed the opportunity to worship him and praise him? Do you remember that day when the risen Lord Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus as they were walking? They're walking along, and it says that the Lord Jesus walked back through Scripture and through everything that had happened, and he helped them see everything. He helped them reorient all that had happened so they understood it rightly, so they understood it correctly as what it really was. Soon, the same risen Lord Jesus is coming back. He'll return, and I think, just like on the road to Emmaus, I expect the Lord Jesus to talk each and every one of us back through our life story, back through those pains, back through those sorrows, back through those late-night angel-wrestling seasons, wounds and all, and in his mercy, he will open up our eyes to see and show us what he was doing, and we'll know in that day, we will know and understand those darkest moments were the deep, caring, tender acts of love from God that they were. And to the risen Lamb, we'll sing forever and ever. Father, the only way that we could think about these truths and bear such pain is because we have beheld the greatest act of love in the cross. We have seen what, how deep the Father's love for us. We have seen that. We are sure of that. And so in faith, Lord, in faith, we look to you and we trust that all that you give us in this life, the pain, the heights, the joys, the wounds, the limps, the exhaustion, we trust that it is the outflowing of your love that you secured for us on the cross, loving us into your holy presence so that one day we will look you in the face and be like you. We trust that you are accomplishing that good work in us now, Lord. Give us eyes to appreciate that and recognize all of these acts of love and how you care for us day to day. We love you in return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.